Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get over, though, right now to Roger Dickerman. He's the founder and CEO of Artifacts. Um, the website is Artifacts. A-R-T-I-F-E-X dot art. And they just held a show, um, Digital Icons plus Miami, or Digital Icons and Miami, uh, on June 7th with a bunch of artwork, original artwork, 3D sculpture, NFTs. That should be your clue as to what we're going to talk about. So non-fungible tokens. Roger, thanks for joining us. What what did you actually show at the show? We're, we're, are we talking about physical art that you hang on the wall were 3d sculptures like 3d in real life or was that were the were these all sort of computer renders man it's a pleasure to be here thank you for having me so what we showed was digital art and so the proxy is the real world imagine a painting on your wall that would be a 2d and imagine a sculptor took that painting a character in that painting and made it a literal sculpture a 3d version of that we're doing that in the digital sphere so we have the 2d version of an artist's artwork and we have a digital sculpture that can be displayed all over the place in 3D form. Can you define, Roger, what is a non-fungible token? Think digital ownership. So think a digital artist for the past several decades making fabulous art, doing it on behalf of a brand, a commission, a contract. They had no way to do that on their own. One of my favorite stories, an artist named Bill Ellis, part of the Artifacts Project, he worked for an ad agency, and he had uh, Nike and LeBron James come to him for his work, but he had to do it under the ad agency's brand. That was a $65,000 contract. He got paid less than $500. Non-fungible tokens allow a creator like that to go directly to consumer, to collector, with valuable artwork and make a transaction. But what I don't understand is, uh, say um, I made a 3D digital render of a Ducati Panigale and I photoshopped my dog Steve driving it, I could sell sure. <laughs> the NFT to Paul that guarantees him the rights to own that digital yeah. file. And then I could just give it away, copies of it to anyone else, right? So does Paul really own it? This is a great question, right? He owns the spot on the blockchain. Now you can look at physical artwork too. Look at museums famously or infamously housing forgeries for hundreds of years, right? Un unbeknownst to anybody, physical paintings can be forged too. Physical drawings can be forged too. Uh, an artist can overprint, right? Unknown to the collector. So you face these same issues. Ownership matters. It's baked into human DNA. People want something and they want the true version of that thing. NFTs help with that. How does a consumer know that they are getting, I guess, the real thing versus fake? I mean, do you kind of think this investment market is safe? I guess the, I can't think of a different word, but do you think it's safe for investors? It doesn't investors? even have to be fake, right? A copy could be exactly the same as the mm -hmm. original. It could be the exact same code. But if you don't have the spot on the blockchain, does that make it less valuable? I believe it does. I believe it does. And I believe that, you know, the platform or artist provenance matters. So where are you acquiring this from? You're starting to see artists step forward with their own contracts, your smart contracts, that is. Uh, you're starting to see, you know, platforms, established brands step forward as a trusted place to transact. And, and both of those sources will help with that verification process. And in honesty, you know, that verification process, 
is easier with an NFT than it is a physical painting. I think there are still issues around the, the uh, you know, whether the Mona Lisa, right, whether it's really the Mona Lisa or not. So, Roger, around these halls here at Bloomberg, we talk a lot about investments. And yeah. I guess the question is, do you consider NFTs to be a true slash real investment or is this maybe a fleeting sign of a very expensive and frothy market? There are many there are many aspects of NFTs that are just frothy market will pass, you know, like ships sailing in the night. We'll never hear from them again. However, here are the tried and true value propositions of NFTs to break it down as art, utility and access. Art, global art market, over $50 billion. That has been a thing for a long, long time. Digital art is the most recent art form. Again, several decades old. There's real value there. Auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's starting to step up to the plate and see that. Christie's recently proof of sovereignty auctions. Sotheby's recently natively digital auctions. They are leaning into this. They understand there's value in digital art. Then utility. Now, NFTs can do more than just art. Art led the way, digital artists led the way, but we're talking about games. We're talking about our tickets will be NFTs. We're talking about our jerseys and future metaverses will be NFTs. They're gonna be around for a long time. The question there with utility in mind, what can your NFT do? And then lastly, access. You see these fabulous cases of artists, creatives and beyond opening the doors with their NFTs. For example, another artist as part of our project, Robbie Trevino on his own, he's, um, Magic the Gathering, Tool Music, he did some covers for them. He's built a social profile to several hundred thousand people, and he was able to sell a key. It's an access key. It's an art piece, but also a key to future prints of his, future access points of his, future meet and greets of his, future gatherings of his. And I, I believe he uh, he grossed over $100,000 yesterday. Tool uses that guy's art a lot. Yeah. And, and I love um, Tool so much, and I love... The artwork as well, but I just, to me, I don't get the value. Like, is it, do you use it as a screensaver then? Or is it like on your iPhone? Um, it seems different from having what we consider to be the actual Mona Lisa. You know, it's interesting you touch on that. And I make this point a lot. And I think as this market develops, we're going to see two things spearhead this notion of how do you display digital art, which will help with that value connection. We're going to see better frames, flat out better frames, frames that you can put on your wall in your home that will blow any physical frame away. They will be thin. They will be sleek. They'll be able to look traditional if you want. They'll be able to build into the wall if you want, and they are going to blow your mind. The art will be able to move. It will change based on time of day. It will be programmed to do different things. NFTs are really going to shine when those frames improve. And then also in digital lands, you know, we talk about futuristic movies, right? Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg. You get into that future world in which people spend a little bit more time in these digital universes. When the display use cases improve there and you can take your NFT into those digital worlds where you spend a lot of time, that's also going to drive value. All right. Uh, very cool. To me, the most interesting thing is just talking about these concepts and trying to wrap my 47-year-old brain around them. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Roger Dickerman there, founder and CEO of Artifacts, talking to us about non-fungible tokens. It has. You have to admit that it's definitely a fascinating topic. This is Bloomberg. Right now, I want to bring in Darren Williams. He's the CEO of Southern Bank Corp. Southern Bank Corp is a for-profit, mission-driven community develop 
Development Financial Institution. They are based in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, Darren, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, love to start off with you just kind of giving us a 30,000-foot view of Southern Bank Corp. Uh, who are you guys? And just give us a sense of the type of business that you guys are pursuing. Sure, Paul. First of all, thanks for having us on. Uh, so Southern Bank Corp, we are, as you said, a community development financial institution, or a CDFI. We're about $2 billion in assets. 52 locations spread out through the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta, uh, in one of the most persistently poor communities of the United States. Uh, our, 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 our communities are, are largely rural, substantially African-American, and low-wealth communities. Uh, we are in places where uh, many banks have fled, with bank consolidation um, happening across the country for you know, a, you know, two dozen years now. The number of banks in rural and underserved and low-wealth communities continues to shrink. And we know when those communities don't have access to capital credit, and traditional financial products and services, then they are often um, uh, inundated with predatory types of alternative financial services. So we've served those communities where others have chosen to play. So uh, last week, Square announced the allocation of $25 million as part of this $100 million investment you're making in minority and underserved communities. How are you doing that? How are you getting them help? Well, we, we, first of all, let me say we're extremely um, a, a pleased and excited to have Square as a shareholder. Square, of course, is a uh, has a superior um, a payments platform. They are a financial services technology company, one of the best around. And so to have their endorsement, to have their support and their partnership uh, means a great deal. They invested common equity, multi-million dollar common equity investment uh, in Southern, which will allow us to grow and expand to go deeper uh, and to go further uh, in the markets we serve and, in, and to expand uh, to additional places. And uh, in fact, one of the things that we're very focused on is increasing and expanding our uh, financial technology uh, ourselves. So we, uh, over the last four years, have developed a cloud-based core processor, which is the back office of the bank. Um, and on that uh, platform, we build digital verticals or think fintech apps. So to have one of the uh, world's leading fintech companies uh, partner with us. We are excited about what we might learn from them. Uh, so their investment is going to really help us to go deeper uh, and further in helping to serve those who are often left out and left behind, forgotten about by the financial services space. Darren, you know, when Matt and I speak to um, CEOs like yourself, we always like to get a sense of how the pandemic has impacted their business, their market. Love to get a sense. We know that some of the underserved communities around this country were uh, disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, by the economic disruption. Tell us about your markets and, and, and your business and your customers. So, Paul, you know, one thing that's, that, that you have to think about is even prior to the pandemic, uh, the Delta region is one of the most persistently poor communities in the United States. It, it suffered from a number of ill effects of just, uh, uh, you know, just poverty, uh, lack of educational opportunities, lack of economic opportunities. And so that's why we do the work that we do. That's why our work really focuses on things that have proven to build wealth and move people from uh, financial uh, insecurity to financial security. And so the markets that we serve, they were suffering prior to the pandemic. But like um, many markets, uh, the pandemic had a, had a, had a huge impact on, uh, on retail, on, on our hotels, on our um, restaurant customers. Uh, we were able to provide the Paycheck Protection Dollar uh, Program uh, to almost 2,300 businesses in our markets, about $150 million in Paycheck Protection Dollars that we provided. And many of the, mar many of the customers that we talked to, we actually, we actually did a survey, and some 54% of them said they had no other alternative uh, and would have probably closed down but for those Paycheck Protection Dollars. And so really, we're proud to provide that SBA program, that support to them. Uh, yep. And they are 
uh, slowly recovering, uh, and it, it's it's hit and miss. Some are doing better than others, but they without that, um, the, the devastation would have been much worse. You um, you, you were spearheading that ten billion dollar push, and you also were working with Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, David Solomon at Goldman Sachs on President Trump's Great American Economic Revival Initiative. How do you um, see that work continuing with this new administration? Well, I can I can tell you that, that the first meeting, uh, the kind of the financial services team we had with President Trump, really proud that um, uh, David Solomon, uh, Brian Moynihan, um, uh, and others really encouraged the administration to um, support and invest and make a, and, and and support our efforts to have a carve out to make sure those paycheck protection dollars went to minority depository institutions and to CDFIs because we serve those who are often left out and left behind and don't have access to larger banks. Uh, and so really proud to have that partnership. And now that Wall Street partnership uh, is taking is taking additional form. So uh, Brian Moynihan and Bank of America also made a multi-million dollar investment in Southern just uh, just some time ago. And so really pleased that these uh, partnerships with CDFIs, MBIs, and, and, and corporate America uh, continues to flourish. Also proud that the philanthropic community, which has been a longtime supporter of mission-focused banks, are even redoubling their efforts. And now the government, you ask really about their response. So uh, for the CDFI space, there's some $12 billion that's coming to the CDFI space through the government support. And in fact, today, uh, Vice President uh, Harris uh, is going to make an announcement, uh, and she's going to be introduced uh, by Lisa Mensa, Opportunity Finance Network, one of our leading uh, trade associations for CDFI loan funds. Uh, and they're going to talk about the this administration's support of this industry. And so really proud to have that attention focused on uh, us right now. All right, Darren, thanks so much for joining us. Darren was one of the Bloomberg 50, and he continues to lead the push to help those, uh, support those, probably is a better way to say it, that are underbanked in the Mississippi Delta area and throughout the U.S. Let's bring in Ben Ammons. Uh, he is a managing director at Global Macro Strategy, um, uh, of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors. Ben, I've been uh, getting your notes and absolutely loving your research let me get your take first on the inflation debate, because this is uh, obviously the focus of markets. On the one hand, you've got fiscal stimulus of $5 trillion and more coming, um, monetary easing of an extra, well, $4 trillion on the balance sheet, and then some, um, pent-up demand by consumers with 15% savings rates, um, companies that are investing CapEx and, uh, uh, and spending money like they haven't in many, many years. And what's holding us back then from from real inflation that's going to stick around for a while? Hey, Matt, thanks for having us again. Um, yeah, that's the, the, it's actually an interesting question, Matt, to the extent of like, <clears throat> how do you define transitory as we talk about it, right? Like, you know, um, if you look at the PPI data today, you drill in that, you see the autos and uh, sector, for example, that was off the charts. So it's like 27 or 38% year-on-year change in, in producer prices on those. And that, that sounds a lot like a peak inflation, right? That's very extreme. I think that's what markets are looking at. If you get these kinds of jumps in these sort of categories, it becomes almost untenable, right? You, you cannot really sustain that price level. Whereas the other factors that you mentioned of all the spent-up demand and savings and capex that's all working itself through the economy could sustain at least a higher level of inflation than we've had pre-pandemic, when we were really in a low-inflation environment. So I think if you square the two, I think we have a transitory narrative about, yes, you have excessive price increases in 
some categories that this happened to be a major demand because as we unwind this pandemic slowly, at the same time, there's an underlying current that is clearly pointing to that at least the growth of the economy stays stronger, and that should lead us at least closer to that long-term average of what the Fed wants, 2%. Looking at the high yields, they're not very high, Ben. I mean, it is just extraordinary what's happened in that market. Just give us a sense of what your call is there, what what, what your take is. Yeah, I find it an interesting call, Paul, because, you know, if you look at high yield, it's done really well, you know. If you want to invest in fixed income, that's what, that's the place to be this year, right? And and if you drill in there too, what's really driving it? Again, it's energy materials and autos, right? They, th- those are the sectors that have done exceptionally well. So it is a lot about, I think, you know, global demand reopening that is that is, you know, have investors in the, in particularly those bonds. And I guess if you add in the cruise lines and and the leisure hospitality, they've been issuing bonds during the pandemic and they they've been scooped up, right? So high yield is strong really because the economy is strong, is there's very little default risk at this moment. But we also have to take note of the fundamental factors. You know, one key factor, I think, that is driving inflation is this used car component in CPI and in PPI. It's not going to sustain that way. So I do think that, that high yield, if it is traditionally seen in you know, autos and related type of sectors, you know, what we had back in 2014, too, we got a, get an oil price change, right, that drove the energy sector of high yields much wider. Somewhat could happen in this case, too, once these auto prices start to correct, if you have this, you know, really like a situation where auto prices are just too high and demand and supply works itself out, right? And I think that's where maybe somewhat of a, of a downdraft could happen in high yield. What it means for broader markets, we'll see, right? It's, it, it tends to be a pretty slow bleed initially, but it's to be watched because it's definitely at levels that is, yeah, I would say, bring us back to the 2007 complacency levels. What uh, what do you think about the meme stocks that we're seeing? I spent a little time on Wall Street Bets today, and it just blew my mind. And it's not my okay. first time there, right? It's But every time I go there, I'm like, holy cow. Um, there's some big dogs here, and, and they're doing some crazy stuff. But they've managed to push like GameStop into the Russell 1000. Now, um, a lot of the stocks that they're, a lot of these meme stocks are big. Palantir is a $46 billion company. You know, um, what's your take on on what's going on? And do you spend a lot of time now on Reddit? I don't spend much time on Reddit, than that, uh, but it is an interesting platform to keep keep an eye on. Right? As in, there's a lot of sentiment and hype there about these stocks, and it seems to be communicated there quite a bit. But if you really look at that sector, and you just again look at a fundamental way, what I find really interesting is exactly what you're telling. You have the market capitalization of some of these companies ballooning at the moment. And it's all driven by equity value increasing. And there's some companies... GameStop is one of them, AMC too, and, and I believe it's Goodrex or GoGo, one of those others too. They're actually pretty levered, right? They have a lot of short-term debt. And what's now occurring is like if you're seeing with S&P last week upgrading uh, AMC's rating to triple C plus, which is still very distressed rating, but it's upgrading. That's exactly the effect from this, this hype around that stock. The stock price is up a lot, keeps going up. The equity value continues to improve, the market capitalization increases, and that brings the leverage of that balance sheet by itself down. And I think this is what draws in the fundamental investors whom, as you mentioned, now have to take it more seriously because those stocks have a bigger weight in, in say, a Russell 1000 index, right? So fund managers have to pay attention to these stocks, whether they like it or not. So I think if you if you look at that whole space, 
you want to particularly look at the companies that are that have actually short-term debt and as a result can be able to deliver that debt, so to speak, with either indeed equity sales and use the proceeds right. to bring down the debt and or the equity value goes up and the debt leverage goes down. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. As always, always appreciate getting your perspective and your views across asset classes. Ben Emmons, he's a managing director, global macro strategy at the firm Medley Global Advisors. We love talking to Ben. Again, he puts out some fascinating uh, research notes with great uh, regularity, I might add, and they're always a good read, giving you some good uh, thoughts uh, for these markets. This is Bloomberg. Well, a bunch of economic data came out this morning. Retail sales a little bit weaker than expected in the month of May, although the April date was revised higher. But the market seems to be looking at that PPI data. Uh, producer price index uh, came in higher than expected. So that factors into the inflation discussion. Let's break some of these numbers down and preview what we will likely hear, hear from Fed Chairman Jay Powell tomorrow. We do that with Yelena Shuleteva, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Yelena, thanks so much for joining us. Any takeaways here, one way or the other, out of the economic data that we saw this morning that jumped out to you? So, uh, the retail sales report, uh, yes, uh, at the uh, headline, it showed a decline, but you need to uh, remember where it is coming from. So, uh, the previous two months of data were revised higher, basically showing even a bigger boost from the stimulus checks uh, that uh, consumers received uh, earlier this year. So, this is just normalizing from... Uh, significantly uh, elevated levels of retail sales. If you look at uh, retail sales in level terms, they're still way above uh, the trend that persisted before the crisis. So uh, the data still supports our expectations for a very robust reading on consumer spending in the second quarter of this year uh, when GDP numbers are released. And uh, one more thing to highlight is that the report actually shows ongoing rotation uh, in terms of consumer preferences, uh, consumers are dying to get back into, uh, you know, experiences, yep. things like dining out, vacationing, and things like that. And the report actually shows that uh, there is a pickup in the services sector of the economy if you look at the restaurant sales component of the report. So that is all uh, pretty good news, actually, uh, I think. Uh, I wonder about the savings um, thesis, Yelena. Every time I read about, especially um, an inflation hawk, but anyone who's talking about big growth coming up says it's going to be powered by savings. And I, you know, that data I can't see through. You know, does that count money I put away in my IRA? Does it count the meme stocks I'm buying? Um, how is it measured and how broad is that savings? Does everybody have a ton of savings um, or is it just, you know, rich people on the coasts? So it's it's very difficult to assess, but uh, yeah, a lot of it uh, is held in um, uh, in the hands of uh, uh, more uh, high income people. So a part of it will go into the stock market, I think. But it doesn't mean that uh, uh, the rest will just uh, stay in the savings and checking accounts. So there are a lot of different ways to look at this data. So one is just simply to look at, uh, at how savings and checking accounts uh, compared to pre-pandemic trends. And there's a huge discrepancy there. So there's a, a lot more money held in checking and savings accounts. You can also look at uh, savings trends uh, based on uh, personal income and spending data, which usually is released at the end of the month each month. 
So that shows 2.3 trillion uh, extra savings uh, in the hands of the U.S. consumer. While not all of it will be spent, consumer surveys suggest that about a quarter of this money will be spent on goods and services. And I think that's going to be an important driver, along with other things, such as the powerful wealth effect uh, that uh, we will see this year. So some stimulus money basically helped uh, to boost uh, uh, consumer spending in the beginning of the year, and uh, those more powerful trends like savings and the wealth effect will continue to push consumer spending higher uh, as the year progresses. All right, Yelena, let's fast forward to tomorrow, a uh, preview of what we may hear from Fed Chairman Powell. What are you looking for? So uh, the markets will be looking at uh, whether uh, Mr. Powell flips in terms of uh, uh, his message, and I don't think it's going to happen. Can so he afford he to do speak. that without losing his credibility? <laughs> I mean, that would really be giving up. He would be a huge loser if he did that, no? And, and, to use yes, some Trump I language. I agree with that, but, but he doesn't have any reason to do so, so uh, uh, basically, back in April, he said that the recovery is far from complete, and the Fed will continue to provide accommodation until the recovery is complete. So it was not complete back then. It's not complete now. If you look at uh, the payrolls report, right, the, the latest two of them, so that actually reinforces the Davish uh, message from the Fed. So despite an inflation pickup, I think uh, the Fed will stick to the same exact message. They will upgrade uh, their projections for inflation in the summary of economic projections, but will quickly discount it as uh, temporary, uh, our favorite word, uh, you know, temporary transient uh, factor um, uh, in uh, the press conference. Uh, one thing to watch will be the dot plot and uh, whether the Median dot for 2023 moves, uh, showing a liftoff. Oh, but, yeah. But uh, that is also um, quite far away, and I think oh, yeah. uh, we will stick to our own forecast for 2024. Uh, dots for first, go uh, also right. on the terminal. But, of course, uh, always great to get your take as well. Yelena Shulyutyeva, thank you so much for joining us, Senior U.S. Economist at Bloomberg Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.